Well, good evening. I am uh, happy to be with you this evening, of course. Uh, a little bit sad, though, because this is the last night of our meeting. Uh, I know that uh, it was just six days ago that we began, and it seemed like a long way in front of us. And perhaps as we think back over the lessons, it seems like it has been a long way. A lot of words have been spoken, and uh, it is a little bit sad to come to the end of the week. Uh, it's certainly been a great encouragement to me to be here with you. Uh, the invitation from the elders was... Uh, gratifying and uh, the opportunity to get to know you and the congregation here has been such an encouragement. Uh, you've been so kind and uh, some even to take us into their homes, uh, the Jenkins and the Dows and uh, uh, Sister Jane and uh, the Delks and the Lewises and uh, tonight the Zonkas. Uh, and yet uh, even beyond that, uh, so many of you have made a special effort to uh, say to me that which every uh, preacher likes to hear, that there was something challenging and something in the lesson that made you think more seriously about uh, the Bible and about its application to your own life. And I just wish that each and every one of you had some small part of the encouragement that my wife and I have gotten uh, from this week. And I know that uh, we have uh, covered a lot of things and a lot of words and I am confident that I've left a lot of important things unsaid and uh, even confident that I have said some of the things that I intended to say, uh, but not in the way that I wanted to say them. And uh, for that, I apologize. And yet I hope that uh, we each and every one of us carry away from this evening a willingness and ability to uh, examine ourselves and to, if it's possible, to take every thought captive. That has been our theme for this week, that uh, we recognize the inroads that the world makes upon us uh, with the uh, media that surrounds us, with the uh, kind of entertainment that we experience, with the conversations and the associations that we have with the people of the world, and that behind it all is the malevolent force of Satan who wants to steal away from us the gospel truth in our hearts and divert our loyalty from Jesus Christ. And yet, uh, as the Apostle Paul suggests, though we walk in the faith, we do not war according to the flesh, uh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ Jesus. And I've tried to phrase those battles over our own minds and our own thoughts and our own hearts in terms of modern isms. And this evening our text is a familiar one, Proverbs 16 and verse 18, pride goes before a fall. And the ism that we're concerning is the ism of self-ism. And yes, I know I stretched the word a little bit there uh, in order to make this fit the modern isms. But it is, if anything, the most important of all the lessons that uh, we have considered together this week. Perhaps the greatest challenge of all to our thoughts is the pervasive viewpoint of our modern society, self-ism. 
the self-esteem movement. And it is a movement replete with its uh, proponents and replete with its propaganda and powerful in its influence to shape people who are taken unawares. The self-esteem movement is a movement that in its very fundamentals is contrary, I think, to the most fundamental principles of Scripture. And it will be one of the lessons that I am afraid more people will object to than any of the others that we have considered over the course of the week. Someone asked me, uh, what are you speaking on Friday night? And I said, self-esteem. And they said, oh, I wish you had spoken about that earlier in the week. And I said, no, it's the last lesson deliberately because when the lesson is over, I'm going out the doors and get in the car and leave because there will be considerable objection to what I have to say this evening. But I hope and I pray that what I have to say is the truth and comes from the scripture and will be helpful to you in trying to defend yourself against this movement. These ideas of uh, self-esteem are so replete in our culture that they just are taken for granted. This idea that we must think that we are worthwhile, that we are somebody expressed in every kind of way you can think of. Uh, you are somebody, you are somebody important, everybody is worthwhile. If you don't respect yourself, then nobody else will. I'm okay, you're okay. All of these statements seem to us to be obviously true, and yet there is embedded in them, I am afraid, a uh, disease of self-centeredness that is a, a huge barrier to our being what we ought to be in Jesus Christ. We can't escape, I think, the biblical teachings on this point, the emphasis in the Bible on humility. We sing the songs very frequently, as will we, as we will uh, at the end of the lesson, on bended knee, and we humble ourselves before you, and I appreciate the selection of that for an invitation song for this evening. And yet, as we sing those, do we really understand and really make the application and believe the uh, importance of humility uh, before God? One of the things that you receive throughout the scriptures is this emphasis on the need for humility and the opposition of God to those who are proud. Proverbs uh, 3 and verse 34, surely he scorns the scornful but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 11 and verse 2, when pride comes, then comes shame, but with humility there is wisdom. Proverbs 16 and verse 19, better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Romans 12, uh, Proverbs 29 and verse 23, a man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. These are passages that uh, from the Old Testament might suggest uh, an ancient point of view, but we turn to the New Testament and we find a similar kind of teaching. Romans 12 and verse 3, you ought not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Philippians 2 and verse uh, 3 through 8, 
where we read about the having in ourselves the, the spirit of Christ. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Don't look after your own interest, but also the interest of others. Let this mind of Christ be in you. And of course, the example of Jesus humbling himself on our behalf is a powerful one. But the lesson the Bible is trying to teach us we need to think of other people as better than we are. And that's a battle for each and every one of us each and every day. God's attitude to the proud is demonstrated in uh, the book of James. In James 4 and verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Verse 6 of that same chapter, he gives more grace Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. And I'll tell you, anybody who has ever been, I think, in a position of some kind of authority will understand this attitude of God. As a uh, teacher, I certainly uh, recognize this feeling. Students very frequently come to me demanding that I change their grade, that I give them a better grade, that I correct some of the mistakes in the, uh, in the scoring of the exam. And the more proud they are about that, the more resistant I am to changing those grades. It's the students who come and say, I'm not sure. I wish there was something you could do about that. I, probably nothing you can do about that, but could you just explain this to me? The humble you give grace to, the proud you resist. Don't tell any of the students at Florida College currently about that. Uh, I, don't, I don't want that uh, to get out too far. But it is clear that we understand God's attitude about this. And the scriptures plainly teach us that thinking highly of ourselves, self-esteem, is not the solution, but it's the problem in our lives. Look at uh, passages like Mark 7 and verse 21, where he talks about the origin of the evils in a person's life. For from within, out of the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts and adulteries and fornications and murders and thefts and covetousness and wickedness and deceit and lewdness and eye, evil eyes and blasphemy and foolishness. And all these evil things come from within and defile a man. And the one I left out, of course is the one we're concerned about this evening, pride. You look at the list of those terrible things, pride is right there along with the worst kind of immoralities in a man's life. And God intends us to pay attention to that and recognize that that's a source of our problems, not a solution to our problems. You can look back in the Old Testament and one of the things that you see consistently is God bringing the nations down because of the uh, pride that existed in them. Passages like Daniel 5 and verse 20 where he's surveying history and he says of the king when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. Over and over again, there are examples of those nations that grew proud and arrogant, and God brought them low. And it's not just the nations, it is individuals as well. You recognize that those men of faith 
If we go back through the uh, book of Hebrews uh, chapter 11 in the roll call of faith, or we go back through the Bible classes that we've studied since we were small children and the great heroes of faith, every one of them secured their favor with God by their humility. Paul says of of himself that he was the greatest of all sinners. And maybe sometimes we think that's one of those kind of false humility sort of things that he clearly wasn't the worst of all sinners. I mean, at least if I look at him, I know he wasn't the worst of all sinners because I know at least one who's worse than he was, at least in the kind of objective measure of things. But Paul understands his standing before God and that he is, in fact, a sinner and the worst of all possible sinners. David confesses that he was brought forth in iniquity and he understands with horror the sin that he committed with Bathsheba, but he knows throughout his life that he is not worthy of what God has given him in blessing him. Psalm 34 and verse 18, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Psalm 51 and verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. And understand that people read these passages, religious people, sincere people, they read these, and they think this is a a once-in-a-lifetime moment of conversion that we have this kind of sense of brokenness and contrition before God. But once we get past that, then, of course, we are lifted up and uh, we can think more highly of ourselves than we did before. Get back to normal, as it were. But this is the consistent pattern of those who were uh, in favor with God. And over and over again, in contrast to that, the Bible contemns the uh, selfism of the wickedness of men and expresses the worthlessness of men without God in their lives. Jeremiah speaking as an inspired prophet, says that the heart of man is wicked above all things. So wicked, he says, desperately wicked, that nobody can understand it. And I think what he is suggesting there is not some kind of academic sort of psychology about human nature, that people's spirit and their, uh, and their mentality is kind of obscure. What he's saying is very personal kind of thing. We can't understand the depths of the evil and the depths of wickedness that are in our own hearts. And we need to recognize that as we come before God on bended knee. Paul, of course, in Romans 3 and verse 10, quoting Old Testament passages, I understand that is in big capital letters in my text, but uh, quoting the Old Testament passages, which were true then and are still true today, says, there is none righteous. And he just wants to make sure you get that point. The Holy Spirit asks him to say, there is none righteous. No, not one. Nobody can stand before God and feel good about themselves because of their sins. And that's true about each and every one of those men of faith in the past. Uh, Old-timey sermon is uh, entitled something like a, uh, a roll call of rogues, a roll call of the wicked, 
And when you go through that roll call of the wicked, what you see are the truly righteous men of the Old Testament as they esteem and measure themselves. Uh, Abraham in Genesis 18 and verse 21 says to God, Indeed, now I who am but dust and ashes have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord. It was an inexcusable boldness on my part that I did not deserve. Job says, as he finally has come to understand not why the bad things happened to him in his life, but to understand the distance between himself and the God who is in control of the universe, says in Job 40 and verse 4, Behold, I am vile, and what should I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Job, one of the more interesting characters in the Bible, I think, People talk about the patience of Job as James identified it. My dad always used to say, Job's just stubborn. And, uh, and before God, he says, you know, just tell me, you know, give me an answer. I deserve an answer. And even in his pain and suffering, I want to know just if there was a mediator, I could give an explanation to God. And then finally, finally, all the way at the end of the book, the long book of Job, he understands that there is no answer for him. And there is no explanation that God owes to him. He is vile. David, in Psalm 51 and verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And David is not there concerned with some kind of Calvinistic, predestinarian uh, kind of uh, theology. He is only expressing the feeling that he has when he comes into the presence of God. There is nothing worthwhile in me that God should attend to. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5, when God calls him, says, I want you to be a prophet for me. Woe is me, he says. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people who are likewise of unclean lips. It is too much to see God. Ezra 9 and verse 6 one of the righteous men of his day who has come far from Babylon to come back and restore Jerusalem and the worship of Jehovah. Ezra says as he prays to God, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen up higher than our heads and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. And yes, I understand it is easy to read those things and think that's just the kind of terminology that righteous people use. It's just kind of in some ways a uh, pretense, a false humility. I wonder sometimes what the young people think when they see us, hear us singing these hymns that express our humility and our brokenness before God. Does that really make sense to them in the way in which we conduct our lives and the way in we speak outside of those kind of few moments of hymny, uh, of uh, singing together? You know, it is uh, like the story about the, the uh, denominational uh, priest uh, uh, bowing before the altar. Oh, God, forgive me. What a terrible sinner I am in this system. A minister comes in, oh God, forgive me, what a sinner I am. And the janitor comes in, throws himself down and says, oh my, what a sinner I am. 
And the assistant minister turns to the other priest and he says to him, now look who thinks they're humble. As if somehow the expression of these uh, heartfelt feelings of humility belong only to those who are specially righteous in some ways. No, it is real humility. It is real embarrassment and real shame and real guilt on the part of these men. The centurion spoke to Jesus about his servant, and he said to him, you know, my servant is ill in Luke 7 and verse 6, and he said to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. Don't even come to my house because I am not worthy that you should enter in my roof. And Jesus praised him for his great faith. I have not found such great faith, he says. And it's not just the great faith that says you can heal at a distance. It's the great faith that says I know who you are. And I know I am not worthy of you even to come into my house. And there was Paul, of course, who says he was the greatest of all sinners. And uh, we have discussed that already. Truth of the matter is, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is for just such as these. When he talks in the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly in the Beatitudes, and he talks about those who are going to be blessed, such as these belong to the kingdom of heaven, and to such as these belongs the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are those who mourn, and blessed are the meek, and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake. These are characteristics of someone who has looked at the world and looked at themselves, and they realize with shame and guilt their unworthiness. Those are the ones, he says, are going to be blessed and who are going to be able to enter into and possess the kingdom. And you contrast that kind of uh, attitude of the scriptures with the kind of teaching that we find in the world today about uh, self-esteem and the need for us to feel good about ourselves, the need for us to find something worthwhile in ourselves, the need for us to have confidence in ourselves. And you find that uh, these expressions permeate our society. This idea that feeling good about yourself is the cornerstone of well-being. That just is where you have to begin in therapy. You have to begin with trying to feel good about yourself. Get over somehow your guilt as if it is not real. Feel good about yourself. The fundamental cause of suicide, they would suggest, is a loss of self-esteem. The single greatest need of women today is for self-esteem. These are direct statements from the self-esteem kind of philosophy. Even Christian writers sometimes fall into this kind of, uh, of, uh, of uh, self-esteem-ism when they say, can a woman who aborts her baby really love herself as if somehow that act is an indication of the fact they needed to love themselves more as opposed to the fact that they needed to love that child more. And uh, it permeates our lives and our families. A parent should discipline their children so as not to harm the child's self-esteem. 
And I know, I understand you read those statements and they seem like they make perfect sense. That seems like it's the most obvious things in the world because that's what the world continually tells us and that we ought to think those things. How in the world can we as Christians reconcile these kind of ideas that self-esteem is the most important aspect of our well-being with the teachings of the scripture? How can we reconcile it with the songs that we sing? What about uh, the kind of songs we sing, such as None of Self and all of the, I assume y'all sang that song sometimes. And of course, uh, you know, the progression from one verse to the other of the transformation of a person who becomes truly committed until they can actually say, none of self but all of thee. That's very contrary to these kind of ideas. Or Amazing Grace, perhaps, yeah, I get in real trouble with this. Perhaps one obvious, not the greatest hymn ever written, Amazing Grace that saved a wretch like me, or clay in the potter's hand, which includes the line, Thou art the potter and I am the clay, or just as I am without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me. In fact, we don't really sing the songs the way they were written anymore, for the most part, at the cross the line, would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I, has been changed in modern times for such a one as I, because we wouldn't claim or uh, point out to others that we are worms with no more claim on God's attention than a worm. And it is his mercy and his grace that saves us, not our value. Or beneath the cross of Jesus, and the verse no longer says, my worthlessness, it says, my unworthiness, which maybe seems to say the same thing, but it seems to me it mitigates a little bit this idea of worthlessness in the presence of God. These are very different kind of ideas than the ones that we find in the self-esteem movement. Selfism is in some ways suspicious too, that the Bible and its teachings about guilt is a fundamental problem for people in the world, that the preaching of the gospel that says we are all sinners and that we are all wicked and that we are without hope in the world except for Jesus Christ is a source of mental illness. Some of you may remember the first uh, uh, a trial of Andrea Yates, who had uh, uh, drowned her babies in the tub, and uh, the, it, the uh, defense was that listening to fundamentalist preaching was the cause of her lack of self-esteem that had led her to uh, murder her children. And that's not an unusual kind of an idea. It is certainly an unusual setting in which to find it. But the sense among many of the therapists around the country is that guilt that is created by the preaching of the gospel, uh, particularly in fundamentalist pulpits, is really the reason for mental health problems and that the solution is to get away, do away with that kind of preaching and to do away with the idea of guilt. That we have to learn to love ourselves. That's an amazing thing. Some people think and argue 
that the Bible teaches that we first have to love ourselves. And they go to this passage in Matthew 22 and verse 36 when they said, What is the great commandment of the law? And Jesus said, You should love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and the great commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And their argument is, aha, right there, you see, you've got to love yourself before you can learn to love other people. And the first obligation you have if you're going to be a good Christian and if you're going to be charitable is to learn to love yourself. That's not really what the intent of that passage is, I'm pretty sure. We're not commanded to love ourselves, we're commanded to love other people. Because loving ourselves is a natural state, and that natural state has to be overcome, as so many other of our natural inclinations has to be overcome. In Ephesians 5, in verses 28 and verse 29, Paul tells the men to love their wives as their own body. And he goes on to say that no man has ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and cherishes it. That's the fundamental nature of mankind. And that fundamental nature has to be overcome. If we're going to love other people, we've got to get past loving ourselves so that we can love others. Remember the most uh, uh, famous parable of them all, the parable of the Good Samaritan? That occurs because somebody in Luke 10 and verse 29 comes to Jesus and they says in response to this passage, you need to love your neighbor. Well, who is my neighbor? That clearly is a person who already feels pretty good about themselves and not about their neighbor, and they want to get out of their obligations to their neighbor. And that's when he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, the one who is in need. That's the one who is is your neighbor. You need to love that one. Self-love is the problem. It is not the solution, as modern society attempts to teach us that that's the case. When we point out very frequently that a person has low self-esteem as an explanation for their failures to do the things that they ought to do, I really think the problem more frequently is someone who is already self-centered and has an exaggerated view of their own competence and their own worthiness and feel like that they are being in some ways cheated out of their due. The real problem, very frequently, is not a lack of self-esteem. It's some other kind of moral problem that leads them to engage in these kind of self-destructive behaviors. For instance, they say sometimes that the failing school child is failing because they lack a sense of self-esteem. And sometimes they're failing because they, they, they refuse to try. And the argument is that's because it would diminish their self-worth. Well, I think that's exactly the case. They don't want to try because they already think too highly of themselves and they're afraid they're going to fail and that somehow they'll be forced to grapple with the fact of their incompetence. It's not the fact that they are suffering from low self-esteem and we need to give them some sense of self-esteem so that they can accomplish things. Here's the issue. They need to learn to accomplish some things, and then they can take some kind of uh, proper appreciation of the fact that I did this, and what I did was useful to somebody else. The other problem that seems to exist very frequently is their concept of self-worth and self-esteem does not include studying, but it includes surliness and rebellion instead. And the problem is 
Maybe they haven't been properly disciplined in order to have self-discipline so they can do the things that they ought to do. Or the promiscuous young woman who can't keep from giving herself to one man after another, no matter what he says to her, just so long as he is glib in saying it, and they say she had like self-esteem. I'm not sure that's the case. I think the problem is she doesn't have a moral anchor outside of herself by which she can measure those kinds of behaviors. Maybe she's too concerned about herself and she thinks that people ought to love her and she wants them to love her by using this inappropriate kind of means to get them to love her. The solution to her problem is not to love herself more. The solution to her problem is to love God more. The solution to her problem is to love her parents more. And in that case, she would behave more morally. Or, in fact, go back to the issue of suicide. Those who commit suicide because life is not meaningful have not done so because of low self-esteem. I don't think that's the real issue. They've fallen into the trap of expecting too much out of life or of themselves or feeling that they're not getting what they deserve out of life. The real issue for them is they don't have a meaningful kind of life because they haven't found meaning in their service to others or in their service to God. They need to look to God in order to find some meaning in their life, not try and create in themselves greater self-esteem. The Bible teaches us that better way that meaningful lives are lives of service. And it's a pity that no one is telling these young people as they grow up, this is the way in which you have a good life, is you try and do things for other people. You try and accomplish things that are useful. You find some meaning in your life by serving something that is bigger than you are. Instead of telling them, that you deserve to get more out of life because you are just worthwhile as you are. There's a sense in which life is not really worthwhile until we find something meaningful, some meaningful goal, meaningful relationships, meaningful activities. And ultimately, for things to be meaningful to us, it has to be because it's useful to somebody else. Ultimately, because it is approved of and service to God who is the creator. And that's the problem with wrongly identifying with self-esteem, is we feel like we have to have worth in and of ourselves, rather than learning that we have a creator who has given worth to the things of this world as he has seen fit, and that what is really meaningful in our lives and worthwhile in our lives is the ability for us to be able to serve God and to serve others. The solution is not artificial self-esteem, but a self-esteem that comes out of our service to God. It is not to learn to say, I'm okay, you're okay. It's not to be able to say, I just met somebody I like and it's me. It's to increase our usefulness to others and our usefulness to God. Just increasing a child's self-esteem by falsely, autonomously saying that you're worthwhile is not going to help them perform any better. It will eventually lead to even more rebellion against God and more injury to other people and ultimately, of course, to themselves. 
Some of this teaching on self-esteem comes out of the uh, psychological studies of the 60s and the 70s, and the idea was taken up by education community, but uh, sufficient time has passed, as science usually does, and they go back and they uh, restudy those original uh, kinds of premises, and the 2003 issue of the APS Journal is entirely devoted to the false conclusions about the self-esteem kind of movement, and they demonstrate the empirical truth that uh, common sense assertions are true, ultimately, that people are able to be useful and they find meaning in their life when they have developed some kind of competencies, not the other way around, that we give them a sense of self-esteem and then they develop some kind of competencies. One of the things the scriptures tell us, and I think it's the central message of the scriptures, to turn and be converted is far, far better than just the kind of client-centered therapy of Rogers that blames our personal problems on the fact that others don't appreciate us as they ought to. It is certainly true that we can do a great deal of damage to one another with our kind of conditioned regard that says, I'll only like you if you'll be like this or you'll be the way I want you to be. And children uh, and spouses are very frequently distorted in uh, their uh, uh, ability to be servants to God because of that kind of conditioned sort of regard. But the real key to our lives and the real key is to get over guilt by having it forgiven. Forgiveness is better than unconditioned kind of positive regard in which we just tell people it doesn't matter what you've done. You're okay anyway. It is not really a true friend or true love that makes us feel better in our sins and our immorality. The proverb says, uh, as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. It goes on to say, faithful are the wounds of the friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Christ does not come to us and say that you can stay the way you are as a sinner. Yes, he loves us as Romans 5 tells us, even when we're unlovely and when we're in our sins. But he does something about those sins, and he calls us to a life of purity, and he raises us up to his level of purity by his own righteousness, not encouraging us just to live as we are. 1 John 3 and verse 1 one of the great verses of hope in the scripture, as I read it, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Scriptures say that you can be converted and you can be transformed by Jesus Christ, that we can be made like him. But of course, what is that appeal of the gospel to the person who has self-esteem, who feels like they are okay as they are, who has been guaranteed this unconditioned positive regard by the world? We need a new concept of ourself and we need a new concept of our relationship to other people. We need really not a new concept, but we need the old concept of the scriptures, the idea that we are 
sinners who are in need of a savior. Another of the supposed biblical arguments for self-esteem is the argument that we are created in the image of God. And this leads to the false conclusion that we have some kind of intrinsic worth. And clearly, of course, when God created man, he looked at his creation and he said, it is very good. And we understand that there is a sense in which there is value in human beings who are created in the image of God. But let's not distort the meaning from a generic value of mankind, man in the image of God, to an excess valuation of a specific man, regardless of his relationship to God, regardless of his status before God, as a sinner in need of some kind of redemption and in need of conversion. The real origin of selfism is, as with the case with many of these isms, not in the scriptures, it's not in the Bible, but it is from humanism. Uh, Witt's uh, chronicles the development of the self-esteem movement uh, that came from the influence of John Dewey at uh, Columbia Teachers College in uh, New York City uh, back in the 50s and the 60s, and uh, how it has uh, been related uh, to the psychological community through the works of, uh, of uh, Maslow and Rogers and uh, Rollo May. And these things are the source of this idea that somehow we have to like ourselves, we have to feel good about ourselves, in and of ourselves, as opposed to recognizing our sinfulness before God. And recognizing our sinfulness before God, acknowledging that, and pleading with God for the salvation that only He can provide. One of the things that uh, you can look through the scriptures over and over and you can find plenty of passages that tell us about our sinfulness and about our worthlessness, about the iniquities that we've committed that are piled up to the sky. But what you do not find are passages that tell us that we ought to love ourselves. You know, it just is such a big thing as part of our lives that uh, we... We just accept it as it comes in from the outside without examining it in the light of the scriptures. There was a time uh, at uh, Florida College, some of the nicest kids in the whole country, and they planned their banquet every year. And uh, they have a theme song, and their theme song was Whitney Houston's song, The Greatest Love I've Ever Known is the Love That I Have for Myself. And it's like a great song. Well, I don't think so, but it is a song that expresses this kind of an idea and is acceptable in the society in which we live. But it is absolutely incredible to me that people think that 2,000 years of Bible study never discovered until just now that we need to love ourselves before we can love other people. No, that didn't come from the Bible. That kind of an idea came from a humanistic psychologist who ignored what the scriptures have to say. There's a fundamental contrast in values here, as there is in everything else. Selfism is based on the humanistic concept that we can perfect and save ourselves. That if we take thought, if we say the right things to ourselves, if we practice the right kind of therapy, that we're going to be okay. 
But that's just not the message of the scriptures. The message of the scriptures is not that we can be okay just as we are, but the assumption that we are sinners in serious jeopardy and in need of God's salvation. No, that kind of preaching is not popular anymore, but Jonathan Edwards, the old Puritan preacher who suggested that we are suspended over the bottomless abyss of a flaming hell by the trembling hand of a vengeful God, captures in some ways the kind of jeopardy that we're in as a result of our sins. And those sins need real remittance. They need real redemption. And that's not going to come from some kind of self-esteem theory. The consequences of selfism are enormous and enormously negative. It teaches us tolerance for sin in ourselves. It teaches us to accept ourselves the way we are, what I call the Popeye philosophy. I am what I am what I am, and there's nothing I can do about that. Well, there is nothing that we can do about that. There was something that God can do about that if we humble ourselves before him. If we bend the knee and we come to him in humility, he can save us and he can transform us. What we need is not therapy, but radical transformation. And that radical transformation only comes when we repent and repudiate our sinful nature and turn to God to become a new creature. So radical, it's talk, it is described in the scriptures as a death and a rebirth. Colossians 3 and verse 5, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. And uh, this kind of uh, transformation is not something that we can work for ourselves. It is only something that God can do in us. One of the consequences, I think, of this idea of selfism is that it lies at the basis of the sort of idolatry that thinks instead of having to humble ourselves before the God who is the creator of heaven and earth, who is the judge of all things, that we can find some substitute that we can control in some ways. That was the great appeal of the wooden and the golden metal idols of the past. We can take that idol, as uh, Isaiah said, and we can stand it up, and we can pray to it, and we can move it from one place to the other, nail it to the wall so it won't fall over, but it's ours, really, in some ways. And the worship of that idol was kind of a worship of themselves. They made it. Romans 1 and verse 21 suggests the same kind of an idea. That is, instead of worshiping the creator, they worship the creature. They worship the image that was made like a man or made like uh, four-footed animals or even like creeping things because that meant they didn't have to give up their ambitions and their plans or even their self that they could control the world around about them through that idol. That's not the God that we read about in the scriptures. The God that we read about in the scriptures is the God who requires us to come to him in humility so that he can transform us and change us. Selfism reduces our value in the kingdom, for the value in the kingdom is measured by service to others and putting others first. In Matthew chapter 18, in verses 1 through 4, disciples are debating on the basis of typical kind of human ambition and self-esteem. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's me. No, it's me. I have no idea what the form of that debate was. I'm pretty sure 
When James and John, or James and John's mother, whichever that was, went to Jesus and said, let's have the right hand and the left hand for my sons, that uh, the rest of the disciples were pretty put off by that. Uh, maybe, you know, they were fighting over the, the third and the fourth places after that. Nonetheless, all of them felt they deserved more than they were afraid they were going to get. But Jesus says you have to become converted and be like a little child. Whoever humbles himself is a little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever is the servant of others is going to be the greatest among you. That's where we find greatness in our life. That's where we find value in our life is by serving others. To be useful, we need to think about others and not think about ourselves. We need to give up that kind of false humility that self-centeredly wallows in complaints about our own worthlessness and uh, wallows in the kind of, uh, of uh, failures of our life and wallows in the kind of, uh, of uh, uh, failures to achieve what we want to achieve in life. We need to give that kind of false humility up and have a genuine humility that wants to serve God and wants to serve others because they seem to us, because they are, and God has told us, more important in our lives than we ought to be to ourselves. When we humble ourselves, we ultimately are going to have the kind of happiness that God wants us to have. Selfism is not the route to happiness, but unhappiness. The more we think about ourselves and the more we're concerned about uh, whether we are getting our just due, the less we're going to be satisfied with what we get in life. The only way to have the positive benefits of the kingdom is through humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Sometimes perhaps maybe you sing this song, Others. Lord, help me live day to day in such a self-forgetful way that even when I kneel to pray, my prayer shall be for others. And of course, uh, you know, sometimes the hymn writers, and as we sing those hymns, sometimes we feel those are poetic expressions and exaggerated in some ways. But there's a real truth here, I think, in the scriptures and in these hymns that express scriptural ideas. That's the way that we can have uh, the sort of blessings in our life that God wants us to have. This kind of emphasis on self-esteem distorts our ability to train our children. Parents become so concerned about uh, their impact of their discipline uh, on the self-esteem of the child, and uh, that according to some kind of worldly psychologies, uh, uh, psychologist standards, that they are not able appropriately to discipline their children. And you know the passage as well that suggests in the scriptures that uh, the rod of correction is useful in driving foolishness from the child. The ultimate aim, of course, of discipline is self-discipline. But the only way in which we learn self-discipline is that someone has taken us in hand in love and has disciplined us uh, so that we recognize the values of a life that follows the rules. And I guarantee you there are legitimate concerns about uh, the abuse of children, and the Bible condemns those actions as clearly as possible. And, of course, uh, there are some parents who are going to be guilty of that kind of excess in terms of the disciplining of their children. But that does not warrant our failure to discipline our children so that they can be the kind of person that they ought to be. 
And ultimately, it is a disservice to the child not to provide them with the kind of discipline that leads them to be self-disciplined and to be able to serve others and to serve God as they ought to. Another of the failures of the self-esteem movement is it destroys the sense of the guilt. And, of course, this is where we ultimately bring our lesson. That is, every one of us is guilty before God as a sinner. You know, and the idea of guilt seems very negative. Certainly when you're feeling guilt, it is oppressive, and it is not something that is pleasant. Uh, It is something, of course, that is very much a concern in uh, educational community and in psychology and in therapy. There's a recognition of how guilt can eat away at us and is destructive. But it is a good thing. It is like pain is a good thing. If we didn't have the sense of pain, we might uh, lean against a hot stove and never know until we smell the burning flesh, the damage that we were doing. Guilt is uh, like pain. It tells us that we have violated the moral regulations that God has put into the universe and that there's going to be some serious damage that's going to be done if we don't change our behavior. Animals, of course, don't feel guilt because there are instinctual limits to the kind of behaviors they engage in. But people created in the image of God have free will, and there are no instinctual limits on the kind of behaviors that men can engage in. Look through history, and you recognize that that's the case. The only limit to men's behavior is a sense of morality, and that sense of morality has to come with a sense of guilt or conscience when we violated those rules that God has set down for us. And when people lose a sense of guilt, they lose really any limits on what they will do. What we need is to recognize the kind of guilt that we feel. Recognizing that kind of guilt that we feel, we can come to God in order to find the only solution, the only real solution to guilt that exists in the world. Jeremiah 6 and verse 15, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. We need to be very careful that we do not lose a sense of guilt in our lives when we have violated God's rules. And we need to recognize that other people need to feel that guilt. We need to preach about sin, and we need to preach about morality. And when people are struck in their conscience as they were on the day of Pentecost, and they cry out, men and brethren, what must we do to be saved? Then we can tell them what the plan of salvation is. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We need to make sure that we are preaching the same gospel that was being preached in the first century, the same gospel that came out of Jesus' incarnation and his death on the cross for our sins. If we fall prey to the self-esteem doctrine, however, instead of sound gospel preaching, what we may have is the kind of preaching that is condemned in the scriptures, that is, preaching to those who have itching ears, so that we get the message that they want to hear, not the message that they need to hear, not the gospel truth, that is the only way by which we can be saved. You understand, I'm sure, those of you who are here on a Friday evening, 
the importance of the gospel message and the importance of preaching that message to the lost of the world. There is only one way to be saved unless you repent. And the only thing that brings us to repentance is a recognition of the fact that we are sinners before God. And, of course, once we have recognized our sins and repented of them, it's like, what can we do? And the message on the day of Pentecost was the same as the message to uh, Paul on the road to Damascus. That is, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Don't be deceived by the speculations of the world, by the modern thoughts that are raised up against fortresses. Don't be deceived by the modern isms. What you need to do is to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. This is the message that was brought into the world by Jesus Christ, the message that was paid for by his blood. And there is no other way that we may be saved. No other name other than the name of Jesus. No other plan other than the plan that was preached in the first century. Except that we come repenting to Jesus Christ in humility. And we're obedient to him in baptism. If you're here this evening and that message resonates with you, we encourage you as we stand and sing this song.